The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Our guest today is Dr. Walter Longo, a biochemist and one of the world's leading researchers into aging. Professor Longo has done decades of research in genetics, nutrition, stem cells, and cellular regeneration to create a dietary approach that mimics the effectiveness of fasting, but without the hunger. His fasting mimicking diet, or FMD, is described in his new best-selling book, The Longevity Diet. Through his research, he reveals how adhering to this diet triggers cellular regeneration and rejuvenation and reduces the risk of cardiovascular, neurodegenerative, and autoimmune diseases, diabetes, cancer, and dementia. Dr. Longo is professor of gerontology and biological sciences and director of the Longevity Institute at the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. He's also director of the Laboratory of Oncology and Longevity at the Institute of Molecular Oncology in Milan. Professor Longo received the Nathan Schock Lecture Award from the National Institute on Aging in 2010 and the 2013 Vincent Cristofalo Rising Star Award for Research on Aging and the 2016 Glenn Medical Foundation Award for Research in the Molecular Mechanisms of Aging. Time Magazine has called him a, quote, guru of longevity, end quote. Dr. Longo was born and raised in Genoa, Italy, and received his undergraduate degree from the University of North Texas, where he majored in biochemistry with a minor in jazz performance. He received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of California, Los Angeles in 1997, and his postdoctoral training in the neurobiology of aging and Alzheimer's disease at USC. He has been at the University of Southern California School of Gerontology since 2000, which is one of the leading programs for aging research. Today, we'll discuss the fascinating research behind his fasting-mimicking diet. I would also like to mention that all of the proceeds from his book, The Longevity Diet, are donated to charities as well as to his ongoing research. Dr. Longo, thank you so much for joining us from Italy today. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, we're so honored. It was a long introduction there. <laughs> well, there was a lot to say. And I think the only thing we shared in common is I have a background in biochemistry. <laughs> Good try. That's fascinating. Um, and I, one of the things I appreciate the most about the longevity diet is, you know, it's so evidence-based. And as someone who is involved in research as well as in clinical medicine, you know, there's so many diets out there. But the merit really, as you point out, is that there's convergence of science on some of the diets, meaning that whether you look at the diet from a basic science approach through epidemiology, centenarian studies, control trials, all the different methods, there's a convergence as the diet that can stand out as one that truly is best for our health and longevity. And that's precisely what you've done. Can you kind of talk a little bit about your work that's led to this, because decades of research have gone into what you've kind of collated into a book. Yeah, so essentially, I started with uh, mice and humans in the Walford Laboratory back in, in 1992 at UCLA. And, uh, but then I realized uh, that that really provided one pillar, what I call one pillar, 
which is clinical studies, and maybe one and a half years, and, and maybe some basic research. And uh, I, um, I thought, well, it's important to go back uh, to the basics and find out what the genetics of aging are. And so I spent you know, the next 10 years or so in, in other laboratories looking at the genes that control aging. And um, to then, once I felt that there was a, a genetic foundation and also a, uh, this historical foundation of, of the work on color restriction in humans and, and mice, um, then uh, I moved back to uh, mice and then eventually to clinical trials and, and to epidemiological studies. Um, and so, you know, that so really represented 25 years of work. Um, and, and after 25 years of work, I, I felt you could always wait forever, but I felt that um, it was enough and it was so solid that I could write something that could help lots of people like I help myself. I mean, I always started with myself and I used to have high blood pressure and, and high cholesterol. And, and so did, uh, I, I forget Walford, but I, I remember I have this vague memory that he also uh, used it on himself for that purpose. So, yeah, so these, these, uh, um, these interventions uh, work very well and they can uh, keep people healthy uh, for a long time. The trick was... Uh, how do you get all the benefits without any side effects? And, um, and, uh, and that's what we really worked on for, for so long. And I think uh, now we've we're succeeded in at least identifying the first uh, set of recommendations to uh, get somebody to, to very old ages uh, as healthy as possible. That's perfect. And, and there are really two dietary patterns you've combined in this book. One is the longevity diet overall that one should follow on a regular basis and then the fasting mimicking diet that people should do intermittently. And, and I want to talk about elements of both. You know, in some ways, the longevity diet overlaps with some of the very well-established research that you've cited. Um, and then there are ways where it slightly deviates, um, but in, in very subtle ways. And I wanted to go through that because, again, there's so much confusion um, around some of the recommended diets that it's helpful to find the overlap and synergy and uh, the, the methodology and the reasoning behind some of the, the variations. Um, so the longevity diet, as a lot of epidemiologic and randomized control trials suggest, is largely plant-based um, with some fish. Um, and just like a lot of the large epidemiologic studies, like the health professional studies and the nurses' health study, as well as the controlled trials like Predimed, you minimize saturated fats and sugar and maximize good fats and complex carbs. The, the protein part is the part that I found the most interesting. You know, you recommend keeping the protein level, you know, you recommend low, which is at 0.31 to 0.36 grams per pound which really works out to the recommended 0.8 kil, uh, grams per kilogram. And it's interesting that you reference Yes, the minimum recommended, exactly. And I found it interesting that the minimum recommended is what you considered low, which almost implies that most people have a high-protein diet in excess of what's needed. Hence, most people do, yeah. Yes, exactly. And some um, people are malnourished, right? So this is the interesting part, right? So most people eat too much proteins and too much animal food. And, and then a percentage of people 
isoleret. So lots of uh, person for people, for example, they go to a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the vegans I talk to, they may be protein deficient. So that's uh, that's interesting too. Right? So that that you 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 mentioned similarities, but I will I will argue the devil is in the detail. And when we uh, when we looked at people that had high protein and low protein diet, uh, there was no difference unless you split them by age groups, right? And then, and this is what we suspected based on, on biochemistry uh, data, which is uh, you want to keep low protein uh, but sufficient up to age 65, 70, and then switch to a higher, gradually a gra- higher protein, but also a more variety, uh, a more variable diet, right? It seems like little differences, but the epidemiological data will suggest they're huge. They can make a difference whether all that effort has any uh, effect on mortality or not, right? So, yeah, this is why the science is so important because lots of the times I hear the, the journalists arguing, oh, you know, some of these things we've known forever. And, um, and that's not true, you know. Uh, we, we have ideas, you know, very general ideas, but these general ideas, uh, if they're not put together in a correct way, uh, they can do as much good as they do bad. Color restriction, again, being an example of it. But most of the diets, you know, most of the diets. For example, the very few people know the Italians, uh, some of the Italian population, they live very long, but they're very frail. They're twice as frail as Northern Europeans, right? So, you know, again, the devil is in detail. You don't want to make it to 100 years of age and be frail for 30 years. Uh, you want to make it to, to 100 years of age and be fairly strong and uh, all the way to uh, maybe a few years before, before you die. Right. And, and you're, you're absolutely right about the devil being in the detail because, you know, a lot of people quote the China study, which recommends the lower protein even after age 65. And as you point out... First of all, recommends a vegan diet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a mistake for most people because most people that switch to a vegan diet uh, are going to be malnourished. And, uh, you know, not because the vegan diet is, is malnourished by itself, but that's just the reality. And this is why it's so important, like we do, to run epidemiological and clinical studies because then you see these things, right? You see that, yes, I can tell somebody to be on a vegan diet, but what, how, what do they really do with that, right? I, are they going to listen to all the the explanation or are they just going to eat 10 grams of protein per day? Lots of them will eat 10 grams of protein per day. Right, right. So with really any diet, the labels don't help because you can have a healthy vegan diet and then a not healthy vegan diet. It's, as you say, what's in that diet that ultimately matters. And the protein issue in terms of the source and the age, you know, the the underlying uh, benefit of maybe introducing more protein and possibly some animal sources after 65 is really in the effect on the insulin growth factor. Um, Are there other factors that you think make that a distinct um, difference that we should follow? Yes, I think that, for example, if you you take mice uh, and they're young and you give them uh, a 4% uh, protein diet, they're fine, right? They're very, very low protein. They're fine. If you take old mice and you give them the same uh, low protein diet, they start losing weight very rapidly. 
So probably um, as people get older, the redundancy uh, is reduced. In addition to, uh, to IGF-1 levels, the redundancy goes way down, meaning that they really depend on a few systems to do uh, things, to get things accomplished. And so uh, that um, narrow type of diet uh, might not be sufficient to, uh, to feed systems that are progressively more dysfunctional. Uh, so, for example, normally you might need so many grams of leucine to drive muscle synthesis through the TOR pathway. Um, well, when you get older, uh, those grams might, be, uh, might go up by 20, 30, 40%, right? So now if you have already a low-protein diet to begin with, and, uh, but, and you continue that, uh, this could be okay until you're 60 years old, but then eventually um, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll give you, it'll cause problems, for example, in, in frailty and uh, uh, cachexia or certain, certainly uh, muscle weakness. And is that driven by the effect of insulin-like growth factor being stimulated by protein intake and needing more as you're older because you ideally want a lower level, less than 65, but as you get older, want a slightly higher level for muscle synthesis? It's possible that it's partially um, helping the IGF-1 go back to a more youthful level. You know, as you know, IGF-1 declines with aging uh, in most organisms and including humans. Uh, and it is possible that by uh, increasing, and we also know that people that have very low IGF-1, they tend to do uh, poorly. Now, um, you know, it, it, may, it may be a consequence of problems and not the cause of problems, but certainly the, uh, if you have an IGF-1 of 40, usually those they don't do very well. Um, and so as you get older, the IGF-1 goes progressively lower, and it is possible by having a higher protein diet that helps. But I think it's also not just the IGF-1 is, uh, and, not the, and not just the proteins, but also um, some of the um, more nutrient-rich food, let's say eggs, milk, yogurt. Uh, I, I, um, I think that uh, the, the, these high-nourishment foods that, and may provide uh, uh, a, a benefit uh, for systems that are becoming progressively less able to utilize well whatever low levels of ingredients you might have. So let's say you're B12, uh, you have low B12, and you have low vitamin D, and you have low folic acid. As long as the system is fairly young, it can deal with it. Once the system gets to the 70s and 80s, um, it, it can no longer... Uh, work well under those uh, limited conditions. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, another thing that I thought was really interesting that you point out is that, you know, conventional wisdom is three meals a day. And you also, you know, bring up the point that for some people, maybe two meals a day may be more appropriate. And there's a lot of really evolutionary history behind this um, of us, you know, throughout various time periods, not reliably getting three meals a day. Can you uh, talk more about the benefits of not, maybe not always having three meals a day? Yeah. So the, the concern is, is uh, uh, double one. 
as lots of experts, let's say, started saying eat five or six times a day, uh, people started doing that because it was the general recommendation to lots of people, still is. And then they started increasing the number of hours of food consumption. And now it's about 15 hours a day. So 15, uh, 15, 15 and a half. So now, uh, dual problem. You eat too many meals, you eat for too long. Um, so now uh, the, the ideal seems to be 12 hours. Uh, and, uh, and I think also one of the easiest way to regulate whether somebody overeats or not is to just say you can only have, let's say, two meals plus a snack. That's it. Very simple. You can not follow it, but if you do follow it, uh, for most people, it will, it will take care of the problem. And, um, and I always say, uh, when I follow lots of people doing this, uh, these diets, and I would say the hard part is the first month or so or two. Uh, once you get used to the new, um, uh, this new uh, pattern, then it, it's, it's uh, uh, no problem at all. I mean, I've been using it myself for, for many years. Uh, whenever I tend to gain weight, uh, sometimes when I come to Italy or maybe when I come back <laughs> to the United States, uh, uh, either way, it can, it can give me that stage. Then I, I usually, uh, I, I usually don't, I don't like to do or recommend that people remove completely the meal because, um, again, I don't want to introduce these long fasting periods, which we can talk about, but they seem to be negative. Uh, but uh, try to keep it 12 hours and in that uh, have two meals, two major meals plus a snack. Uh, and usually I do that for lunch. So my lunch becomes, let's say, a salad or some nuts or you know, something fairly small. Uh, a couple hundred calories that uh, it's really um, uh, very low in calories. Yeah, yeah. Very low in calories and very low also in, in carbs. Yeah, yeah and, and talking about the different methods of fasting, it's probably become kind of a pet peeve of yours that so many regimens have been kind of put under this big category of intermittent fasting, whereas you know, what you're proposing is so different and so science-based compared to a lot of the alternate methods that are all kind of now lumped together into this category of intermittent fasting. The fasting mimicking diet has some very unique parts to it. Can you talk more about the science and kind of, I guess, the right way to, to do fasting if you're going to fast? Yeah. So I... Being a student of Roy Walford, and I've seen really what's been a hundred years of uh, research on calorie restriction, um, I learned the hard way, if you will, that um, if you don't have a, a, a much more sophisticated and tested system, um, it will do as much good as it will do bad. And, and so calorie restriction is a good example of that. If you take somebody and you always restrict them in calories, uh, you're going to see lots of benefits. Uh, but then you're going to start seeing lots of problems, right? They're going to become anorexic, and they're going to become weak, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, um, so the fasting mimicking diet was really 25 years of response to that. Right? So when I took over, let's say, from Walford, um, uh, we knew that there were right, extraordinary effects of calorie restriction. Um, which we've eventually, I mean, Walford already knew that at UCLA 
but then it was Weindruck and, and others that uh, confirmed that with monkeys at the University of Wisconsin. And so, uh, for example, diabetes in the monkeys that were calorie-restricted went from 60% to zero uh, or insulin resistance. Um, cardiovascular disease cut by 50%. Cancer cut by 50%. And so, uh, but then the monkeys didn't really live longer or just lived a little bit longer. Right? So obviously there's so many problems that are able to counterbalance all these incredible effects. And so the, yeah, the fasting making diet is really uh, 25 years of, of research devoted to how do I get these benefits, if not even better than color restriction? How do I remove the burden of having to be pushed to the limit every day? And uh, uh, how do I remove the uh, side effects, which are obviously uh, wiping out the, the positive effects, uh, maybe by introducing more infectious diseases, more problems with wound healing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so that's a, the fasting-making diet. And the fasting-making diet is really about, it's not intermittent fasting, although people always put it in the intermittent fasting group, but it's really, uh, the, the ambition is to be uh, next to the medicine, me next to the drugs in the doctor's office as a way to um, you know, address the problem from uh, the foundation. So if somebody shows up with insulin resistance, yeah, you can load them up with metformin, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody shows up with, with high cholesterol, yes, you can load them up with statins, but you're not going to solve the problem. In fact, you're going to create a, a, a problem that's going to get progressively worse and then you go from one drug to two to three to four, and we all know how many drugs the typical American 65-year-old takes now. Uh, so that's not the way. And, uh, yeah, so the fascinating diet has the ambition to say, I think we can do better, and uh, I think we can do better much cheaper and, uh, and uh, fix the problem uh, from its foundation by you know, taking an insulin-resistant uh, muscle cell and making it insulin-sensitive, uh, taking a liver that is making C-reactive protein and, and removing the inflammation and removing the problem and, and starting from zero, and lowering the fat, fat in the liver, you know, lowering the fat in, in, the, uh, in the visceral area, in the abdomen, without uh, decreasing lean body mass, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all those are not ideas. We have actually published this in clinical trials and uh, you know, and uh, we're going to do more and more of these clinical trials. And so, you know, this is now a reality. And, uh, yeah, understanding that uh, we need to do more, maybe in the sense of bigger numbers. Uh, but uh, we already know that uh, for lots of these things, it will work very well. Yeah, and when people do the five-day fasting mimicking diet, a lot of physiologic changes start to happen, as you're referring to in terms of regeneration and rejuvenation, activation of stem cells. Can you talk through the science of what's happening when people do the five-day intermittent, or not intermittent, but the fasting mimicking diet? Yeah, so most of the mechanisms, I mean, we have the human trials, and they work very well, but the mechanisms, of course, we are, we're limited to the mice um, we, we know that things change in people, let's say IGF-1, IGF-PP-1, ketone bodies, uh, glucose, etc. So we know the changes occur similarly to the mice, but we cannot say, oh, let's say stem cells are causing this effect. But in mice, it's very clear the stem cells and the regeneration is causing lots of effects. So we can damage, for example, the pancreas and, and damage the, the insulin-producing beta cells. 
And then we start the FMD and we see that the, the pancreas generating new beta cells that are very functional and they're permanently functional. So now mice that have either type 1 or type 2 diabetes are essentially disease-free. Uh, we've done it with multiple sclerosis, uh, autoimmune models. We've done it with Crohn's and colitis models. In all cases, there is a dual effect. Uh, one, um, you or, or there is uh, three steps. One, you get rid of damaged components, and so let's say um, autoimmune cells. You start decreasing the autoimmune cells. You start decreasing the cancer cells, and then with that, you also decrease the inflammation. Then you turn on stem cells and other regenerative processes. I mean, stem cells are one of the major ones, but there's probably others. And uh, in three, and only when you go back to the refeeding, and that's a trick uh, that calorie restriction did not have, meaning if you're calorie restricted all the time, you never have this the more, most important part, which is not the fasting, but it's the refeeding, right? The, the refeeding is when you, the fasting takes the building down the refeeding builds a new one. And um, yeah, so that's, that, that is the, the, the process I think that is so important. Now, you know, of course I'm exaggerating, it's not a whole new building, but certainly it seems to be a part of the building is now being renovated. And, uh, and that part uh, seems to be brand new and functional. And, um, and possibly uh, the reason for that is uh, an evolution, something that has evolved and it's very sophisticated. So we think of this as, oh, this is things that you know, my grandma used to do. Um, but if done correctly, and only if done correctly, um, and you avoid all the side effects, now that can turn on an incredibly sophisticated, I call it 3 billion years of research and development, because this started really in the prokaryotes billions of years ago, this idea that, you know, if you don't have any food, most uh, microorganisms are starving most of the times, and they eat once in a while, and then they go back to starving. And so uh, when, when the moment of, of uh, feeding comes, they need to really expand and, and be ready to go. And uh, yeah, so that's why this refeeding moment uh, uh, seems to be the, the moment where things get um, rebuilt in a correct way. Uh, using very sophisticated embryonic development-like uh, programs. Right. So really the first two to three days is how long it takes the body on the fasting mimicking diet to transition from you know, sugar burning to fat burning. And then the body out of in this kind of mimicked starve phase gets rid of the damaged cells and then triggers the stem cells that with refeeding kind of rejuvenate healthier cells. So in this way, for example, if a person's diabetic and the damaged cells were in the pancreas, which produces the insulin or in the muscle cells, you're really getting healthier new pancreatic cells, et cetera. And the same is happening in different organs, which is why this diet helps a multitude of chronic conditions. Well, yes. I mean, we know this for mice. Uh, and we know this for people that are relatively healthy, right? So uh, we see uh, insulin sensitization or certainly evident insulin sensitization in people that might have prediabetes. Um, and, um, and, and so, uh, and also we have initial uh, studies on uh, multiple sclerosis in humans. Uh, now the demonstration that what we demonstrated in mice 
the demonstration humans is is not there yet for type one diabetes uh, and even for type two diabetes and and et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of trials, and so we have to wait and see. But certainly, um, uh, there is lots, there is uh, optimism uh, that it will work uh, in, in many of these uh, um, indications, and, um, and we just have to wait and see. For example, we're about to publish on cancer, uh, some exciting work. I cannot uh, say what it is, but certainly it's using the fasting-making diet together with uh, cancer treatment and, and uh it's uh, it's working very well, and uh, yeah. So that's uh, there's going to be several publications on that in the next six months, and uh, we're um, you know we're excited about um, you know continuing uh, in this direction and uh, and seeing what uh, how far we can take it. But you know again, the ambition is to really have it in the doctor's office, uh, whether it's an oncologist or and I think in different you know we're going to have failures. Uh, not everything is going to work. But I think the idea is if, let's say that we do something for a certain autoimmunity and it doesn't work, is to say, well, there's got to be a way to, to make it work. And so we just got to keep going until there is going to be something that, in fact, that is able to take the autoimmunity um, to, to uh, go after the autoimmune cells and replace those with, with functional ones. So uh, it's just, I think, a matter of time before either this diet or intervention or another one is going to be able to uh, to be effective. Yeah, and, and you'd mentioned that the critical part is the specifics behind the fasting mimicking diet, the components, the calories, all the elements to it. Um, you know, the first day is eleven hundred calories, then days two, three, five, or eight hundred, and the diet is primarily complex carbohydrates as well as fats from healthy fats like nuts and olive oil. How did that diet come about in terms of the specifics of those recommendations? Yeah, I, I talk now about a new field, you know, that we have from a pharmaceutical field, we have the biotechnology field. I really think now it's time for the nutri-technology field. And, and it's very different from functional food. Um, uh, why? Because I think it's about understanding the complexity of food compositions and then say, how do I orchestrate genetic responses uh, in, in, in cells and organs um, by uh, modulating or changing the dietary uh, composition? And, and that's where all this comes from. And so you, you, you know, the low protein, high fat, uh, complex carbs, it's just trying to achieve many, many different things. So on one side, it's trying to achieve lowering of IGF-1, lowering of TOR, lowering of PKA, but it's also trying to achieve other things. For example, we don't want blood pressure to go too low. We don't want hypo, hypoglycemia. We don't want hypotension, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, uh, and we also want people to feel uh, relatively full. You know, they're not going to be very full, but certainly uh, we want them to be feeling, uh, we want this to be acceptable to people. Um, so, uh, we also want uh, intestine to be emptied as much as possible, but we don't want to leave the intestine empty because, you know, as we've shown recently, the water-only fasting increases the leakiness of, of the gut uh, because normally when you do water-only fasting, there's no food in the gut. And uh, uh, as somebody um, now has uh, uh, some damage in the gut, 
and this could make things worse and affect in our in our mouse model for Crohn's and colitis. Water only fasting made it worse for the mice uh, in combination with this DSS, uh, you know, uh, in intestinal uh, uh, toxi- uh, toxin. Uh, yeah, so this, I'm just enlisting a few, but uh, in, in every disease we're thinking, in every condition, so prolon is the five days fasting meat diet that you just described. But then for cancer, there's a four-day much lower calorie. For autoimmunities, it's seven days long, uh, but the same calories. For Alzheimer, it's five days long, but it's much higher calories. And there's a supplementation in between. So we really... Think about the patient who we have in front of us, what the age is, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, we, we think about this new technology and how do we uh, change the things that we want to change without hurting the patient. Yeah, which is a very unique approach, you know, looking at the genetic changes that are being triggered in terms of arriving at the various components. And, you know, you'd mentioned that you've been doing this, you know, following this dietary plan for years, what are ways that if, if you wanted to check, okay, how are you aging, if you will, um, at a level before we're going to catch it by typical testing? Um, for example, you know, what I'm thinking is in a lot of our um, clinical trials, when we are looking at, you know, biologic age different from chronologic age, we are looking at epigenetic age acceleration, you know, for our audience who's not familiar with that, it's on how we are changing, how our genes are getting expressed through modifications on our genes. You know, we can certainly measure IGF-1 levels. We can measure insulin resistance. But getting at this question of how do we measure where we are on the spectrum of how healthy we're aging is really a tough one because a lot of the, the testing tends to be more focused on early diagnosis of disease as opposed to uh, kind of these changes that are accelerating aging and leading to disease before they're ever manifest. Is there um, like maybe a profile of labs or a recommended test to, to do if we just want to do a snapshot of aging? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly the, the epigenetic uh, clock um, but also we've been, uh, and we're going to publish soon and, uh, Morgan Levine, uh, uh, Yale has come up with, uh, with a, a formula, um, basically a, a set of markers that are usually between seven and 10. And they include some of these usual suspects, suspects, including, for example, C-reactive proteins. Uh, but some of them are, are not uh, as, uh, they're not necessarily risk factors for diseases, but, she has shown that there is a high correlation between this market, which can easily be measured in any clinic, and the chance of dying or dying of a particular disease from the enhanced database. So, so then uh, she can predict the, that risk by uh, the, the pattern or the levels of all these different markets. I think I really like that more than anything else, more than telomeres and more than, than other uh, techniques. Because I think it combines the risk factors. Uh, let's say two thirds of them are risk factors for diseases. So, and the risk factor for diseases, for example, if you take C-reactive protein, obviously, if somebody is high C-reactive protein, not only are they at high risk for cardiovascular disease, but something is wrong. It's something is not functioning well. Why is the liver now making this pro-inflammatory uh, molecule? 
And yeah, so that's why I really like that, that method of Morgan uh, because, um, you know, in the worst case scenario, it really picks up on lots of things that are going wrong with you. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but also uh, almost for sure, there's also a true aging component. So it's picking up on the biological age and not just on the, on the disease risk factors. Yeah, oh, exactly. Kind of blending the um, genetics plus the clinical markers um, to get at the best approximation. And Dr. Longo, our, our time is short. I wanted to ask, is there any advice or anything that you want to share with our audience that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah, I think and, and next one, which uh, we talked a little bit about, but not very much, is is the 12 hours. Uh, so keeping meals uh, within 12 hours. Don't go much longer. Uh, too many people are now doing these 16, 18 hours of, of intermittent fasting. There's lots of negative data associated with uh, breakfast keeping. Uh, there's also negative data with gallstone formation for people that go 16, 18 hours a day. 12 hours seems to be very good uh, uh, type of time restricted eating. Um, and uh, so that's for sure a, a good one there. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, most of all the things we talked about the fasting making diet, I always say uh, it's not about, it's a need to do it, uh, need to do it basis. Meaning most people need to do it probably three times a year. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people, if you, somebody's obese and has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, maybe they need to do it once a month until they move to a better area. And if somebody is in perfect shape and, you know, 28 years old, uh, maybe just uh, you know a couple times a year is sufficient. So it's also important to uh, to keep in mind that we don't know everything about these things, and uh, um, uh, at the beginning it's probably good to be cautious. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So your research is just fascinating, and I appreciate all that you've shared with us, and really appreciate the time you've taken today to to talk and uh, join me on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you, Fred. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.